The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Morning already is that if the, you sang the sermon and you heard the word read to you, we're all done. I might as well sit down now. You, you, you wish. <laughs> but it is true. The powerfulness of those words of that song. It's not one that I'm familiar with, but it was a powerful song. This past month, I've had the opportunity to spend more time than normal with my grandchildren. A lot of different reasons for that to happen. I happen to have six of them for age 10 and down. Uh, I've learned a lot of lessons. Uh, And uh, one of the things that I learned is that I really feel for you parents that are raising children in today's world. My heart goes out. I mean, we've spent a lot of time. We're still, still parents. But I just noticed in watching them, thinking through them, the epidemic of entitlement is so strong and so powerful that you're going to have to spend so much more time intentionally addressing that than we had to. Oh, we had to deal with it. But you've got it a lot worse, I think, in many ways. Um, Now, when I put on here the gospel, the antidote to entitlement, you are not going to listen to an old man come up and criticize the millennial generation. That is not a new problem. Trust me, I I look back and I'm thinking, "Mm, let's see. It's as old as mankind. Matter of fact, it seems very familiar to me that Genesis 3, the very first sin, had some smatterings of entitlement to it. When I I talk about entitlement, uh, what I want to say is, is that it's like, I want what I want. And what I want, I think, will bring me the most happiness or satisfaction. What I think will bring the happiness and satisfaction. And I want it now. I mean, that's, that's part of that whole package, isn't it? I mean, we do tease how all of us, but particularly now, you come out of college, you've got your degree, and you want automatically to move into a house just like your parents, who have just spent the last 30 years trying to figure out how to pay that mortgage. But it's just natural as it comes to us and works in that. We see it today in the political realm, social realm. I will tell you something. Do not bother to Google uh, entitlement in the church. The whole thing will fill up. You'll get pages upon pages upon pages of all these articles about entitlement in the church. And there's a lot of good stuff that we need to think about that's included in there. And so I think that I wanted to go to where the gospel, to me, most strongly, directly, addresses the concept of entitlement. Self-absorption, selfishness, um, and it's Philippians chapter 2. Basically, spend our time verses 1 through 4. But I do want to start with the whole concept that says that the center is the gospel. As we think through this, it's the center is the gospel. When Paul uses the term so, do you notice where it says so if there is any, and then he goes on to talk about the gospel from there? That word so means he's making a shift. 
and shifting from chapter 1 where he was addressing for the Philippians the attacks and the challenges that were coming from outside the church at them. And he shifts and he moves into an internal issue. Things that are going on inside of the church and that, uh, that I read this, it's turning from the menace of a hostile world to deal with the equally threatening problem of a divided community. Beginning to talk to the church as a family, this whole group in Philippi, which is made up of everything from one of the richest women in the Bible to slaves. And so it's got to be difficult to make that group operate in such a way that it acts like a family. But it's that they're outside, now this is about us. Uh, and so that's what we want to talk about that. I love Paul's literary style right here. Uh, you notice where he talks about, he says, so if, and he uses that terminology, so if. The reason why I love it is I have a fondness for sarcasm. Sorry, it's something I've been working on for 67 years. And, but it sneaks out. It still does. That's that, that old stuff just sneaks out. So when he goes into this, I look at this, and I'm going, this is the obvious if. Paul is being so sarcastic, it just kind of drips. If you have any encouragement in Christ, what in the world are you going to say to that? Obviously, all the answers to here is since, not if. But he really builds for us so that we can have that. So I want you to follow with me on this obvious if. This is the gospel center for the whole importance of the message. Look at what this center is all about. If you have any encouragement in Christ, now here you get to help me with my message. Um, you know, it was a long week. Uh, I couldn't come up with some things, and so I'm going to let you come up with them. Paul asks you, if you have any encouragement in Christ, tell me, how, how have you had encouragement in Christ? Is it true that you have? And if you have, a couple of you just share with me how you've had encouragement in Christ. Not as obvious as I thought, huh? Sure. We'll see a little bit more about that as you go on, but yes, casting, giving you a new, refreshed vision of what he's about. Good. How have you, any of you had any encouragement in Christ? You know, when we have those victories, it is incredible because we know it wasn't from us. That is so encouraging. All right? A couple more. No matter what's going on in my life, I am what? with Christ. Man, that is so incredible because it's not everything always goes the way we want it to go. Yes. Absolutely. The nature, whether it's the beach to the mountains and everything in between is all that encouragement. So we may answer that question. It says, the encouragement in Christ is that we are a community loved by Christ. We are encouraged by a lot of different things. Okay, that's part of the center of the gospel. Then go to the next part. It says, if you have any comfort from love. Now I want to say, because of this paragraph, the way you read it through, what he's intending there is not just love of one person to another. What he means is, if you have any comfort from love of Christ, the love of Christ to you, do you have any comfort from that? And I think 
what Park said was part of that, and any other ideas, ways that you have felt the comfort, which is a little different than encouragement. I mean, they're similar, but comfort's a little different. How have you felt the comfort of Christ? And getting the truth, right? Asking for it and getting it. That is, that's neat. I hadn't thought about that. Excellent. Any other ways that you have felt, experienced the comfort of Christ? Having that peace that you can't explain in any other way, which is one of the reasons why we say the peace of Christ be with you. Excellent. That is an incredible comfort when everything is kind of going crazy. Knowing that you're a child of God and loved, that's an important part, the comfort of his love, loved no matter what you do. That's, man, that's, that's a part of grace that I'm still working on, folks, but that's, that is beautiful. All right, what about participation in the Spirit, okay? If you have any participation in the Spirit, how do we have a participation in the Spirit? Praying. Excellent. Thanks, Bill. His word. That's good, being prayed for. You know, it's interesting, I thought, when I thought about this, and it goes to the, both the song that was sung and where we're going later, it says, we have been baptized by what? How many spirits? By one spirit into one body. That's an incredible, incredible truth, that we have that. that we're not only participating in that way, we also have the indwelling spirit, and there's just so much of the things that go on there. Then he goes on, he says, if you have any affection and sympathy, and again, when you just look at this, you're wondering exactly what kind of affection and sympathy is he talking about. The reality is he's talking about affection and sympathy that is uh, based on the affection and sympathy of Christ for his beloved church. The affection and sympathy of Christ for his beloved church, which has just been the encouragement, the love, the participation in the Spirit, now in any affection and sympathy. Now, I did find one of the fun things uh, that you go in, and every once in a while you, you, you fall upon something that's kind of interesting. And I came upon this, this Greek term, affection. Is, uh, we don't ha it's a weak word. It, we don't have an English word for it. Because it literally means human entrails. I mean, actually, if you have any human entrails... That doesn't make sense. If you have any guts, this is another nice way of saying it. <laughs> Type on that. But the reality of it is, in that culture, that what meant figuratively the very seat of the emotional life. First, I guess it would be like saying your heart, wouldn't it? If you have right this, there's, there is at the very seat of the emotions of Christ is filled and flowing over for you and I. That's how deeply that goes. And we also see that when we go down at, at verses 5 and 6. And we'll come back to that again, but look, at, let's just read that one again if you have your Bibles open to you. Verses 5 and 6. See where the affection and sympathy comes from our Savior. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. If that's not a demonstration. And it's funny because in a way, how much do we really realize that every Sunday, other than during Lent, we have family dinner? And I don't mean that at all disrespectfully. But we come together around the table for that family gathering. And every time we're doing that, we are affirming and proclaiming and celebrating the very affection and love of Christ, the grace of God, all of those things, the whole gospel, every time we come together and share that together at a family dinner. All right? Now, the gospel center, which is where everything has to be, where you look at what the encouragement in Christ, the comfort from his love, uh, his affection and sympathy, the participation in the Spirit, it points to a goal. Paul wants you to know that's the center of how everything occurs. But he says there is a goal for this. Because you look at that and he says there's a way that if you have all of these things, complete my joy. And in that, he had, you can see several places in different of Scripture where he had a special heart for the Philippian church. This church... They did several things, but they, they just really were close to his heart. And he was saying, I want you to complete my joy. This is the apostle speaking. When I read through that, I'm going, well, if it completes Paul's joy, who else's joy is being completed by this? Who else's joy? Ours is being completed very good. Who is Paul speaking for? The Philippians, he's speaking for Christ. It's as if it's, there's a part of this that said, by completing my joy, you're also going to complete the joy of Christ. And let me share with you how that would work. And this, you can see if, you rem if you're better than I am and you can remember some of the words of the song we just sang. It starts out with being of the same mind. Being of the same mind. We... we We've been baptized into one body. It says in other places that we have one mind together. It's been given to us. But being of that same mind is a little more challenging. Why is it, do you think, that the scriptures tell us in different places, like, uh, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Right, you got it. Set your, set your what on things above? Set your mind on things above. It takes an intentional effort to keep your mind up there and not down here or lower. So you need to, we, we just have to live in that reality. That we have this love and the participation of the Spirit and affection of Christ, but there is that part of us that in response to all of that, we have a goal of being of one mind, which means we've got we to work it together. And which also means once in a while we're going to get off on the wrong mind. <laughs> and we need one another to help us find our way back. He says, have the same love. What love do you think he's talking about? What is the same love he is talking about here? The love that Christ had for us. I think that's the best translation that we can find on that. He tells us to love one another just as what? Yeah, Christ loved the church, this is God and Christ loved us. All of that kind of love. 
that comes out of Christ, the, Christ, the love that we see in verses 5, 6, and following. That same love is the love that we are to have. Now, there's something about having that love which means, okay, if I'm going to really think about it, I probably shouldn't react that way in this particular circumstance. It, it affects us. I probably shouldn't treat that person in the church, I shouldn't complain so much. I shouldn't be quite so upset like if the temperature isn't exactly the way I like it. It's too cold, it's too hot, it's too whatever. Temperature in the church is kind of like Goldilocks porridge. You're never going to, it just isn't going to happen uh, that you're in there. But that's part of that whole idea is that we love one another. We understand people are working and trying to help and serve. How do we treat one another in that? And then the last one, he talks about being in full accord. And again, he says, of one mind, the mind of Christ. Now, this teaching comes, uh, Paul's teaching comes out of the center of the gospel which is the love, sacrifice, and salvation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then it clearly sets out our goals of unity, unity of heart, mind, and desires. But then that leads to what I really, to me, was the theme of this morning, which leads us to the implications of his teaching that goes to the main point of this morning's message. Um, this is where, when we think about that, Let's, let's put it in a practical application. When Paul lays it out for us, we see how totally inca incompatible living for Christ is with an attitude of entitlement, of self-absorption. They, they can't. It's like, the, it's like the two magnets. You know, you put the wrong end of the magnets together, they don't stick. They push against each other. That's what happens when you, when you put the gospel up against our attitudes of entitlement. So I call this the gospel life. So I can't alliterate like Jonathan does. And, uh, but so we've got the gospel center, okay, the gospel goal, and now we have the gospel life. So it's, it's not bad, huh, for an old guy. All right. But it is so powerful. I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, this is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture. It goes to the center of our thinking in our lives and our relationships. It's something that I, to be, to be honest, I pray over our body. I pray over my family on a regular basis. Just keep praying it over. I don't, don't know how it's all supposed to work, but I just keep praying that that's what we would be in living this out. And he moves, and all the rest of this is more of a speaking to the whole Philippian church. But when it comes to these, these couple of verses, it's, it's like right to our hearts. It goes from the us to the you, or to the me. That doesn't mean that it doesn't affect, it has a total effect on the us. But it can only really be lived out within our own individual hearts. Do nothing. I don't like those kind of words, do you? You always. <laughs> Uh, you never, okay, here he comes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Yeah, wait a minute, how about, well, this is an old-fashioned, how about risk? Can I play risk? All right, can I, you know, just, just, just for me? Uh, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, selfish, selfish ambition here 
It's how people and circumstances can be used for our own benefit. We use people and circumstances for our own benefit. Again, it's going back to the, I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and I deserve it. This is especially seen in situations where teamwork is called for. How many of you in school or at work have had to work on a team to complete a specific project? If you have, raise your hand. Okay, now how many of you got incredibly frustrated by that experience? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a lot of different reasons. Because that, that kind of a thing, there always is somebody on the team that, that just lags behind. They're just, not, they're just trying to slide in with what you're doing. And they don't want to work. And they're just thinking about, man, I can get out of work. That's, to me, that's a little bit of entitlement, isn't it? Of course, there's the other person on the team that always wants to lead it, and they want to be the one that makes the presentation so that they would get the highest grade or the most uh, accolades from the boss. But when you work on anything as a team, it really brings out some of our sense of entitlement. Um, <clears throat> you probably can't tell, but when I was in high school, I was an offensive lineman, okay? That was, my, that was my role. Matter of fact, I was a, a center, if that surprises any of you. Now, one of the things about offensive linemen is that we're always smarter than the quarterbacks and the running backs, okay? That's just, I mean, you talk to anybody, offensive linemen are the smartest players on the team. I mean, ask, talk to the pros, they'll tell you that. All right, anyway, what would happen is we would do all the work, and the quarterback and the running backs got all the glory. Does that make sense? Okay, or wide receiver. But usually the quarterbacks and the, and the running backs would get all the glory. And after a game or two, they would begin to believe that they were the stars of the team. They forgot all about us lowly offensive linemen, the grunts. So we had a particular drill that we would do periodically when one of our ballplayers specifically needed a lesson to be taught. We called it the sieve. Usually it was when we were going against first team defense, first team offense. I would hike the ball to the quarterback, and then we would just let the defense run all over him. Didn't block, didn't touch, didn't do anything. Just have at him. Now, if you ever were a person that ever played defense, your eyes light up. You see that person. And it's my shot to get them. And they got them. It wasn't very nice, was it? But the interesting thing about it was is it was effective in that it reminded them that if we don't block, they get killed. It's the same thing when we're walking together. You can't do things out of selfish ambition or conceit because eventually you're going to find out you needed everybody else that you took advantage of. Eventually it's going to fall apart. It'll be a house of cards. And that selfishness and ambition will show up. Now he does use the word conceit and, and there I want to point just the thing is that apparently the way it's written Conceit is the center cause. It's called the glorifying in one's own successes. Just like certain quarterbacks and running backs. Glorifying in their own successes. 
not giving the credit, not understanding how God is at work and how many others. So that's the first thing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Then the next part of the gospel life says, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. This is another incredibly tough passage of Scripture to live out. It goes against everything that we, that we feel naturally. And when he says count others more significant, it seems to me that this implies a conscious act of the will. You have to consciously think, I'm going to count that person as being <laughs> more significant than, than myself. I, I've, I've got to work, I've got to think that. Well, as I think of that, without constantly thinking in these terms, we will almost always fall back into selfish, entitled thinking and acting. You know, when I've always wondered about that praying without ceasing passage. And to me, it means more and more in my life, I'm beginning to realize it's listening without ceasing. Not talking without ceasing to the Lord, but listening without ceasing. Thinking about what God would want me to do and respond all the way through and just absolutely natural, normal things of life. Um, this means when you want to count others as more significant than yourself, uh, the clerk at Walmart. Sometimes that can be a frustrating situation. It's not necessarily their fault, but frustrating. Your best friend. No matter who they are, there's been times when that didn't go so well. Your spouse. Not just on big things, but it's hard to consider somebody as more important than yourself. Whether it's on the big issues like our spending and our budget, uh, to what jobs and where we go. And in this one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a personal illustration that, that was, was pretty painful for me. Um, I would only give it if I eventually learned the lesson because I would be too embarrassed, I'm afraid, to let you know I'm... But I do still struggle with it, so let me be clear about that. You know, being in the kind of role that Pam and I have been all our lives, it's been normally God speaking to me and leading us into some kind of ministry, mission, or movement. Not that God didn't speak to her in clear and, and neat fashions, but then when there was something huge having to do with our family, and moves and occupation and jobs, it was always pretty much it started with me. So I would hear from God, or think I heard from God, then I'd take it to Pam, and if it really was from God, it would settle in and become our joint decision. But that was the, t that was the pattern. So I'm always going out, whenever I, you know, the role I was in, I was visiting other churches, I got to know a lot of other people, Opportunities would come and somebody would say, oh, we want you to come pastor our church. And you know, and just being, you know, you love the people, you love the church, and inside you're going, I'm driving home and you're going, man, that would be really cool. I think I might like to live there. I might like to pastor that church. So you're thinking, I can still remember the day as I was coming home when God said to me, and I, I think it was fairly audible, at least it was to me, it's not about you. It's not about you. And I'm going, wait a minute. It's my ministry. It's my calling. 
I think of all the spiritual words you can put together, okay? I use them all. It really, it's, it's always been about me. I had, now, Pam was always on board, but it was always about me. As I was driving along, it's like I finally realized that our lives had changed. We were in a place in life where Pam had to work. She's a nurse, a GI nurse, and she had to work. That has not been our case most of our lives. She had to work because of insurance reasons. Um, I'm uninsurable, and that's the way it was. So she had to work. And so all of a sudden, I began thinking through that, and I thought, and I realized for the first time in my life, which shouldn't have been the first time in my life, that's about Pam. If she has to work, is she happy in this job? What would this move do to her? Is there a job that would be better for her? Is there a job that she would feel as good with the people? Is there these things? And all of a sudden, the more I thought about it, the more I thought the call has to come to her first. It's about her. She's lovingly sacrificed and served all these years. It's not about me anymore. So needless to say, we've been in the same house for 22 years. 21? But it took a lot of time. And for me to realize, you know how hard that was on my ego? God had to slam me with that one. It took me a while, and I still struggle with it. But again, in our lives, it's not about us. It's putting other people being more important than ourselves. Just this last thing, in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Being hum humble means to cast oneself down in a proper attitude of a servant of God. To cast oneself down to be in a proper attitude of a servant of God. Um, before we close out on that, can you give me a couple of illustrations from the scriptures that Jesus showed this clearly in his life? Why he humbled himself and counted others as more significant than himself? Give me a couple of illustrations. The washing of feet comes immediately there, doesn't it? That's a servant's job. Absolutely, which is where we close. Excellent. That's, he emptied himself. <laughs> that, excellent, excellent. Dying on the cross. See, again, that's every, every time we share communion, it's a reminder of how Christ humbled himself, emptied himself, and became our sacrifice. So if that's true, then we go down to verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That means intentionally broadening our perspective. Now I'll tell you, all this is impossible without the Spirit of God, isn't it? All of this is impossible without God doing his work. It's impossible without the gospel work in our lives. And so I find it very interesting that takes us, this next two verses takes us right back to the gospel center. See what, see what he says in this next verse. Have this mind among yourselves. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves in order for any of this to happen, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind 
is what you've been given because of what Christ has done for us. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And we find out, he goes on, he was obedient, even death on the cross. So it seems to me <clears throat> that we are to live all our lives and relationships with the cross foremost in our thinking. Every, all our lives and our relationships with the, with the cross foremost in our thinking. This then protects us and even destroys the awful effect of its selfishness and entitlement in our lives. So as we come this morning, can we come with that same mind that Christ had? Can we honestly say to ourselves, Father, remake me, fill me with your spirit, convict me if necessary, change me, so that I can live a life of the gospel, so that I can do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, Maybe even asking, what am I doing? Lord, show it to me. How am I not counting others as more significant than myself? How am I not looking at the interests of others? So as we come and share and celebrate the ultimate, which is what Christ did for us, how do we then live out the gospel? By sharing that as hearts, living in that conscious intentionality so that others will experience and see the gospel of Christ. Let's pray.